What up, world? Welcome to another episode of Architects, where we speak to the architects of art, the leading voices of music video, filmmaking, and beyond. Individuals shaping the culture of our past, present, and future. I'm Taj Critchlow. Today's guest is a man behind the most iconic pop music videos of all time. Taylor Swift's Bad Blood, Britney Spears' Toxic, and Eminem's Without Me. This two-time Grammy winner spent his early childhood in South Korea and Italy as a military child before moving to suburban Houston, Texas. He attended NYU film school where he struggled to fit in, but in his free time became obsessed with music videos. After struggling to pay tuition and to establish himself as a director in New York City, he found himself back in Texas working in movie theater. But he kept his music video dreams alive and soon began working with Houston hip-hop artists who were signed to the legendary label Rap-A-Lot Records, Ghetto Boys, DMG, Fifth Ward Boys, since then has created one of the most prolific and distinctive bodies of work in the art of music video. He's one of the handful of directors today who can make a music video feel like a blockbuster movie. He also directed films, notably 2017's Battle Rap Satire, Bodied, as well as the unauthorized fan film Power Rangers, which went on to be a viral hit. Shit, he was even on an episode of MTV Cribs. So let's get into it. Please join Director X and I in welcoming Joseph Kahn. What up, what up, what up, what up? Today we have the man, the myth, the legend, Joseph fucking Khan in the building, y'all. Uh, super, super excited to have you, brother. Um, literally, um, funny, actually, before we get into it, into it, uh, we actually crossed paths once upon a time. I was ex's assistant at HSI uh, New York during the glory days. And I believe you were at that company at the time. So when I was coming up, it was you and Diane Martell and Sam Bayer. And I think when Paul just came from FM Rocks. So we were kind of in the same uh, universe, but never had a chance to formally meet. So I'm actually honored to have this conversation, everything going full circle. So really pumped up to have this chat with you, brother. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm uh, glad to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. It's good to have you, man. It's good to have you. You know what I'm saying? Like I said in the emails, you're a legend in these streets. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, have we ever spoken before, X? Or I, I don't know if we've ever spoken. Maybe in passing. Um, I don't remember a conversation. Okay. <laughs> but who knows? You know what I mean? It's been it's been like 20 years now from from then to now, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. It's, it's always super rare when directors actually get to talk to each other. So it's an interesting exactly. experiment. Yeah, completely. Yeah. yeah and, that's, and that's the thing that really drew us to create this this podcast shout out to dean uh we wanted to create a platform to like sit down and just just talk man talk about our journey and our come up because a lot of people just don't know like the 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 grind that music videos is and reading your bio you know i you know read that you're you know born in uh pusan south korea and you moved to the united states at an early age now when I emailed you, I meant I think you mentioned Texas. Are you in Texas right now? I am in Texas. I I, I grew up in Texas and I moved my family back to Texas. Yeah, so you yeah, moved back to Texas. You you got out of LA, huh? I did. That's yeah, man, up. that's kind of that's kind of crazy. So, talk about that, man. Like, 
being South Korean, living in Texas, coming, you know, growing up in Texas and going full circle, what is it about Texas that makes it home? I'm assuming it's the culture, it's the food, it's the people, but what is it that really brings you back to that place of where you started from? Well, okay, so I, I was born in South Korea, <clears throat> but we moved to Texas when I was five and actually moved out of Texas because I'm, I'm a military brat. And we were stationed in Italy for a couple of years. So um, I didn't actually, you know, move back to Texas till I was uh, about seven or eight years old or something like that. Wow. And when I moved to Texas, uh, I actually spoke Korean and Italian. I didn't really speak English. And, uh, and it was like, it was a, it was a culture shock. I had to learn English pretty fast. And, you know, the way Koreans think, uh, like my mother and my father decided that I was going to learn no uh, Korean at all, just get fully versed in English. And, uh, and so now I can't speak either Italian or Korean. I only speak English. That's um, wild. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I, it's funny. It's like when you, when you think about like growing up, I, I grew up uh, like about 10 years in Texas. Um, and that seemed like a long time when you're growing up, you know, because you're seven to 17 years old. Then mm -hmm. I moved to New York. But uh, it's actually a small blip of your life. It's tiny. You know, cause, you know, it's like a very small percentage of my life was actually spent in Texas. But it was formulative stuff. And, um, and, I, and when I, I, I you know, I, I graduated uh, from high school and I immediately went to New York University. And that was a culture shock, too. Mm -hmm. Like uh, suddenly being in the thick of New York when you're 17 years old. And, uh, and God, I, I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's a, like a long time to remember all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I, I ended up going to NYU film school and uh, it was a miserable time for me because I was this sort of super nerd and I, I didn't really know how to speak to people. Uh, and you know what, you know what little like teenage guys when you're 17, 18, 19 years old want to do? Uh, they want to get a girlfriend. <laughs> you know, that's all you really kind of think about more than the filmmaking, more than anything else. It's, you just right. want to like date and things like that. And I was just so terrible at it. So on a weird level, that kind of, messed me up in New York uh, because it was such a lonely time. And I remember like on Friday nights when everybody else would be finished at school and they'd all go out to bars and restaurants and, or I don't know what those, those people were doing. I wasn't part of it. And I just stayed in my uh, dorm. Uh, and, and this is back in the day where there's no internet. This is like 1990, no internet, no cell phone, nothing. You're isolated. Uh, no social media. <laughs> no social media. You had TV and video games. Uh, yeah. And, and I didn't, and I didn't have TV in my room because then I have cable, right? Oh, wow. So, so you'd have to have like an actual – you had to use rabbit ears to actually try to get a signal, right? And so you had like maybe three stations that you could get a hold of. And so I would go down to the student lounge on Friday night and all, all weekends and uh, watch their cable. And basically, I would watch MTV all night. <laughs> I would just sit there watching music videos. And it's funny, if you ever watched music videos in, in like the early 90s, uh, the, th the only thing that MTV played was UMTV raps, like after midnight, you know? Right. So I watched a ton of rap videos, you know? I wasn't even like watching like the cool stuff that, uh, that was like, like circulating. I was watching like rap. And I, didn't, I, I was, by the way, I'm like, a, like an Asian kid from Texas, so I didn't really know anything about the culture or anything like that. But I was watching a ton of rap videos. <laughs> and, and I just kept watching. I was going, like, you know what? Um, and I was at film school, by the way. And I was like... I think I might be able to do that. What those guys are doing, you know, uh, maybe I can clean it up. Maybe I can take my camera and, and you know, give it a little more production value. And I just, an idea triggered in my head that 
you know, uh, maybe I could contribute and make these videos look better. <laughs> so then uh, I went out and started trying to sell myself as a music video director. And I made a music video, uh, failed, by the way, because uh, I, I took this video that I shot for 2500 bucks, ran around New York and uh, went to Def Jam, went to like all the labels and nobody gave me a job. And, and I, basically I ran out of money. Um, my, my parents are not rich. Uh, I went to uh, New York University, which is extremely expensive. I think one year back then was like almost thirty thousand dollars. Today Ooh. it's like sixty or something like that. And and I, as I was there, I was just realizing that there's no way I can even finish this school. I, I got myself into it, but you know I could barely afford it. They gave me a, a week thirty five hundred dollars scholarship, which is nothing. Um, I was starving, and I just realized that I was going heavily in debt, and and. I could do four years of the school, but at the end of it, like, where was I going to find the $10,000 to make a student film? I was going to come out of this experience with nothing, you know, like, except some, some bullshit they taught me, that, which wasn't even that interesting, you know? So I decided I was going to make this music video, spent, uh, put $2,500 on my mom's credit card, um, went around town, tried to, you know, sell myself, failed, and I was back in Texas. And, um, and suddenly I'm like this... Uh, kid in $30,000 in debt with lots of money on his mom's credit card back in Texas, uh, kind of screwed. Uh, and, and basically that was it. And I killed myself and that was the end of the story. Wow. <laughs> I, I can relate. I, I remember New York back then. You remember that too, Taj, the, the lonely New York moment, I think is. Uh, yeah. Living in, living in the attic, bro. You were flowers in the attic. You lived the flowers in the attic lifestyle. That, that was you, you know? Yeah. 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 I moved in with my aunt, my mother's best friend. I lived with her and, same thing. New York is not easy. New York is not easy, man. Especially yeah. just being a guy in New York in your teenage years. It's not easy to meet people. It's not easy to, it's just not easy. It's just not yeah. easy. And I, I, I did the same kind of thing. I just dug into work. Yeah. Uh, but New York basically kicked me out, you know, like I ran out of cash. So I was, I was back in Texas and, um, and I was working in a movie theater. I was doing a couple of different jobs. I was doing stuff that like, remember I was an academic student and I made pretty good. I wasn't like one of those Asians that like could ace the SAT and get into Harvard or anything like that, but I did good. <laughs> I, I had a straight A average and suddenly I had just ruined my entire life and the entire reason my parents came. But the reason why we came to Texas in the first place is because my parents wanted me to be a doctor and Houston, Texas is where all the um, medical centers are. And they oh, just wow. literally wanted to eyeball and, and put me there so that I could become a doctor. And I just screwed that all up. And, and it got basically left film school. I was in debt. It's a single mom. Uh, I'm, I'm like working in movie theaters and counting cans at grocery stores. And uh, it was kind of like a really bad situation for me. But, you know, uh, it, and, and, and what, what was even worse is that I still didn't have a girlfriend, right? <laughs> 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 and it looked like that goal was never going to happen at this point. You, being a little nerdy Asian kid uh, with debt and, and no future, you're, you're kind of screwed. I'm going to be like one of those random Chinese soldiers that's just like kind of buried in the ground and you forget, you know, maybe, maybe <laughs> dig up my skeletons and go, who was that dude? Who cares? You know, so uh, I, uh, I, I started reading books uh, like, you know, I go to the, I go like uh, after after um, work, I'd go to like the bookstores back when bookstores were really around and. And Barnes and Noble was like my, um, or I was called Walden Books back then, but it was like my library. And I would go in right. there and start reading all these film books uh, for free. But then I also started reading um, uh, business books. And I learned how to open a bank account. Um, save, I saved up $500. And eventually I got enough money and I opened up a, a voicemail account. And I came up with this plan that I was going to try to shoot any video in Texas for any local band. Now I ran around and tried to get like rock bands and 
remember, this is back in like the early 90s. The race relations today are all kind of fucked up, but they were fucked up too back in the 90s, you know, in, yeah. in a different level. Uh, it was a different sort of um, feeling. Uh, it's interesting. Today, I feel like the race uh, issue is, it's, a, it's, it's strangely unbalanced, but like in a weird way where, like right now, it feels like white culture is trying to apologize uh, and 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 sort of make up for a lot of things. You know what I'm saying? It's like this sort of weird sort of unbalance. Back in the early 90s, white culture was dominant. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. So uh, there was no sort of apology. There's no sort of like whatever. So like, and by the way, I'm, if anyone doesn't know, I'm, I'm neither white nor black. You know, it's like a, I'm this, <laughs> this Asian dude that sort of popped in the middle of this sort of weird culture war that's been going on for like 50 years, you know? And um and I remember like trying to get rock videos and nobody in rock w- wanted to give the nerdy Asian dude a shot. You know, I could literally try to give a video free and, and these people go, he, he's not cool. Uh, he's not part of our world. And they completely like sort of like dismissed me. On the flip side, I would go into like like rappers and stuff like that in local Houston, Texas. And I say, look, I can shoot you a really cheap video. And, you know, rappers are like, you know, they're. At that point, especially the ones that are like dealing drugs and stuff, like they're businessmen, you know, right. they, they want to get value for their money. They don't, you know, if, if you're the person that can come in there and and shoot the thing for them and they've got X amount of dollars, it's it's, it's no longer about race. It's like, you know, I got to move product and this guy's going to help me do it. You know, it, <laughs> so I was that guy. And, and, and the funny thing was I... In retrospect, what I, what, I, what, I, what I should have really figured out is that the reason why I was able to start getting into the rap world was because at the time, I don't think that a lot of the people that knew camera, cameras that could load film, because uh, this is how I was shooting on film, or, or expose it, or do any of those technical things, they were all essentially white guys. But I was uh, – it's not that I was not uh, uh, like afraid or anything like that. It's just I didn't know. Like I literally didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know anything. You know, like like, like, like these. Uh, I would. I was doing videos for like gangster rappers, and they would rap about drugs and guns and um, women and killing people. And I swear to God, I'm not kidding you. I thought it was all fake. I thought it was like no one actually kills each other. No one actually buys prostitutes. Who actually does <laughs> drugs? Like that was my mentality going into it. <laughs> I was like, uh, I was, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a bless. I think it's a blessing in disguise. The fact that you went into this, you know, blindsided, and you just focused on the art and and like you said, like I would say, you got to go where you're loved. And you know, I know X said in the email about like you know, you know, you know, you're real in these streets because just looking at your resume, the fact that the entry point to music videos for you came from the streets and street rappers that gave you the hours that you needed to put the practice in, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, so that so. To your point, like, you know, going to NYU is one thing, but that to me is the true training, right? Is actually doing it, picking up the camera, start learning your technique, seeing what worked, what doesn't work, and experimenting through these experiences, working with these types of artists, even though you are literally in the trenches. But uh, it, it, it has, you know, like, big up to the trenches because you literally came from a place that helped give you this School of Hard Knocks uh, uh, training that has developed one of the most, you know, respected veteran directors and decorated directors in this business. Um, and I guess my question to you is, what was a turnaround point for you when you were shooting all these videos as a teen, all these rap videos? What was your, what was that moment where people now started paying attention to you um, at the record labels? 
Well, okay, so uh, I, I was literally doing about six months of these rap videos, and I, I swear to you, I, I'm not kidding you, even with six months of experience, and I was shooting like probably two rap videos a month, I, I still didn't know what the hell I was shooting. I was just in the neighborhoods, and 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 the rappers were saying all these words I didn't understand, you know? I knew, I just didn't understand anything of what I was doing. I was just trying to shoot. I was like literally like a glorified DP. Um, and, and they were telling me these stories and I would try to like contextualize it. And I would direct them. I would art direct them. I would do all these things. But I was literally a fucking moron. I just didn't know what the hell I was doing, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I think it was, a, it was a help because I wasn't afraid, you know. I wasn't afraid of anybody. Like I just didn't know I was supposed to be afraid, you know. Uh, right. So after six months um, – you know. and by the way, I was doing it in Houston, Texas. And even though the crime is real, there – it's 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 a you know black culture is not a monolith. That's something I've learned over you know many many years. Uh, black people are different in different regions of America and different yep. places in the world, and uh, they're still kind of like this Texas hospitality. You know, you, you can be hard on the streets, but there there's there's this sort of love that the South has. You know, and they 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 completely embraced me. You know, and it was like I never felt in danger at one minute. At all, you know. Uh, however, then I go to New York, and that's a whole different story. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you had your Scorsese Mean Streets moment. <laughs> yeah. So I started flying. Well, I, I I took my reel and I flew to L.A. and I flew to New York and I was trying to convince people to come to um, come to uh, Houston to shoot things, and. Um, and I actually met with Heidi Smith back in the day uh, at Def Jam. Yep. Mm-hmm. I remember taking her uh, a, a VHS tape and she looked at it and she actually peeled the fucking label off the VHS because I stuck it on myself. And she, as I was talking to her, she was peeling the VHS tape off. I was like, I don't know what the hell that was all about. But <laughs> and, uh, and anyways, I actually convinced her to bring uh, Public Enemy to, uh, to Houston. Wow. Uh, yeah, so I think within a year and a half of me opening my Texas business, um, I was shooting for t- uh, public, and actually before that, for Rapalot, Ice Cube came down, um, and I just shot a video with him and Scarface, and that was probably about six months after I'd done it. I did basically about twenty-five music videos in in a year and a half, you know. And um, and I, and I, Ahmad back in the day, that's probably my first thing that actually aired on MTV. Um, Warner Brothers sent sent him down, and I was actually getting the business to come to Houston, and I was actually doing a pretty good job of of getting it, and I could have probably built a base here but there's there's one big factor that that kind of screwed it all up i wasn't getting laid uh, like i still couldn't get a dick <laughs> like like i thought that when you were a director uh the girls would just come after you and they go oh he's a director but I, what i realized in 1993 is that nobody knew what a director is back then it wasn't a thing on the cultural radar so uh, so like, uh, I decided that, you know, screw this, like literally the PAs on my jobs are all fucking each other. They're all having fun. <laughs> and I'm still this guy going back on Friday night, watching MTV. It was, it was super lame. So it's like, screw Texas. I'm out of here. I'm going to go somewhere where I know women want to sleep with directors. I, this is literally how stupid <laughs> my brain is working. And, and I go to Los Angeles. You know? uh. <laughs> And I, and I swear, like literally, I think within two weeks of landing in Los Angeles, I got laid for the first time, uh, ended up getting girlfriends. <laughs> the, the dream happened. The magic happened, you know. And, uh, well, it all came together. <laughs> it all came together. And I just realized this is the place for me. And this is where I'm going to build my future. So Texas, for many, many years, lost out because they would not 
have sex with its prodigal son. <laughs> All the tax dollars missed. <laughs> uh, so, LA, they call it the big city of dreams. Now, your come up, you know, like you said, you didn't, you watch a lot of MTV, uh, you know, in the student center. Now, in terms of like, I guess shows, movies, cartoons. On your on your website, I saw that you're rocking a Voltron shirt, and it's funny because my nickname is the Black Lion, which is inspired by Voltron, right? And I form the head. So I'm curious to know, like, outside of music videos, you know, were you, you know, were you like tapped into film, uh, like movies, cartoons, TV shows? What are those kind of things that you are drawn to? to help kind of shape your 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 the filmmaker inside of you. Well, uh strangely enough, music videos. Like it, even before I uh got trapped studying them in the student center, uh, some of my earliest memories okay, uh are of actually discovering music. Okay, cuz when I was in Italy, and remember I my family was in Italy till about 1979, 1980, right? Um uh, my dad listened to like classical music and maybe some, um, some fats domino and stuff like nothing rock and roll, but like stuff like way, way in the past. Right. Right. Um, and I didn't really discover pop music or rock music until I landed in America. And the wow. very first time I, I heard rock and roll, it was when I turned on the TV and on Saturday morning, after I watched my cartoons, uh, they had this uh, program for music videos. And it was a very new art form at that point, like literally like in 81, 82 or something like that. And Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll came on, black and white. She, she's on a bar. She's singing. The sound was incredible. Like it, 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 was, it was like a revelation. And I was watching it. So the experience of rock music came to me visually at the same time. And Ooh. then – uh, I, it was the epicenter. A lot of people talk about how uh, they they saw you know Empire Strikes Back and Star Wars and and all that stuff, which I had the same stuff too. But but I was discovering music more importantly. Movies I had already understood because I saw that in in Italy and the other in the, that sort of media was already sort of ingrained in me. What was new was this new up tempo music that had a beat to it. And you know what really blew my mind. I, I watched uh, the Motown 25th anniversary with my, my dad and I saw Michael Jackson introduce the moonwalk, you know? Yeah. Ooh. And, you know, my dad like saw men landing on the moon. I didn't see that, but I saw <laughs> Michael Jackson moonwalk, you know, and that was mind blowing, you know? And, and, and it was another thing too, because I don't think people quite understand it today, especially like what an impact Michael Jackson had on everything, you know? Yeah. And, and so literally thriller, uh, you know, that particular music video was so mind-blowing. Uh, it was scary for me, by the way, because I was a kid, uh, and he was a zombie, and he was being chased, and I could barely watch that part. You know, he's chasing her and all that. But there's a dance number. Uh, the ethnicities of everybody was all mixed, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's like, it like, first it was like, uh, a, like a black couple, but in a mixed theater. And then, and she was really hot, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and then suddenly he's dancing and then all these people crawl out and then everyone's like different colors, but then they're all zombies. The same. It's all intermittent. And then you don't know what the hell any, anyone's race is. The sound itself doesn't sound particularly R and B or rock. It's somewhere in between with the singing. It was such a mesh of stuff. It really was sort of the apex of pop culture. And Michael Jackson was such a big influence on me. 
that he became one of my top five artists as I was growing up that became super influential. It was like Michael Jackson. It was Madonna. It was Janet Jackson, George Michael, and Prince, right? Those to me were like the, the pop apexes. And um, that's a pretty were, good list. That's a pretty good list of uh, yeah, you know what I'm saying? top it's, top top tier pop at that moment. Yeah. So uh, even today, when people talk about like the people that I've worked, like the Britneys and the Gagas and the Taylors and all that, they're all they're. I mean, don't get me wrong. I I I, I understand where everybody sees them as like these huge iconic superstars. But for me, no one ever touches those those top five because that's what I knew, you know? So those are, those are the pioneers. Those are the true architects. Um, they're the architects of this and, industry. Yeah. And like, I remember like Prince, right? I, I actually saw, uh, I don't know how I got into Purple Rain uh, because I was so young, but somehow I did it. What? And, and, uh, yeah, I think I snuck in actually because my mom used to drop me off in movie theaters and, uh, and I would just sneak in and watch all day long and stuff like that. And um, I remember seeing Purple Rain. I remember like being in a pool and it was a summer, it was a hot Texas summer and all these girls in bikinis and, uh, when Doves Cry is playing, and it was just like, oh, it, it just sounded like the, the pain of sex, you know? <laughs> so, no, so ultimately, the music videos actually were super influential for me. They're, they're literally like, uh, uh, like a lot of guys sort of see movies as, as, as what, where they stem from. I actually right. do stem from. Music and the music videos have actually. I've, I've grown up with it. It's been infused in me. It's super important to me. If you talk, tell me what's influential, it's actually other music videos that I grew up with. You know. Oh, it's so funny you said that. Um, even for me, um, I always say like Thriller changed my life. You know, shout out to John Landis. He directed. You know, he directed one of my favorite movies, American Werewolf in London, and. That movie, you know, that music video changed my life. And of course, Beat It and all the Madonna music videos. Like that era was the the the, the golden era of golden eras, right? Um, and another, another artist a lot of people don't really put into that list is Peter Gabriel. Peter Gabriel's videos were fucking crazy. Like Sledgehammer, uh, Shot the Monkey. Like he've always had videos that were always out there. And there were art. Back then, music videos in the 80s were just beautiful and artful and just- Especially Peter Gabriel. Especially yeah. Peter Gabriel, but yeah, like, but okay, but I'll be honest with you. Um, I never connected to Peter Gabriel. I admired him uh, from an artistic point, but the twelve-year-old boy watching the screen didn't really care about that stuff. I cared mm-hmm. about like, why are these people having sex, and how can I have some? Do you know? Like, <laughs> 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 um, so you've worked with some of the biggest and baddest. And what I love about your resume, it's fucking crazy. Like you got everybody from U2 to Katy Perry, you know, uh, Rihanna to Lady Gaga, Aaliyah to Mob Deep to Wu-Tang Clan to Jamiroquai. Um, So many, so many, so many, so many. Um, I guess my question to you is, I know you just mentioned your, your, your top pop artist growing up, but if you were to, if you were to create a, a, a Mount Rushmore, for let's say your top works, which is a really tough question because you know your span is insane. Is there a certain videos that you were like, absolutely, this video has to be on my Mount Rushmore of videos? Like, what's what would those four, four to five videos be? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you the things that other people think, right? Okay. Like, obviously, Britney Spears, Toxic. Yeah. You know, like a, a Taylor Swift blank space or a Bad Blood or something like that. You know. Um, I mean, there's just a, a wide gamut of, of things. Uh, uh, 
Eminem without me or I, I don't know. It's, it's I, honestly, I blank out sometimes I've done like hundreds of videos, you know, but I, right. I know there's like some big, big things that are culturally relevant. And sometimes those do align with me, but like there's things, it's so hard to say because every time I do a video, I try to make sure that the next video is better than my previous video on some level. Now it may not be hit like on an artistic, I mean, uh, on a, on a, on a YouTube numbers level. But right. I'm always trying to make sure that there's something about it on an artistic level, on a personal level, on things I'm thinking about that I'm elevating the art form for myself. And, and it may, it, no one else may quite understand it, but it's stuff that I personally care about, you know? So there's, there's particular moments where I feel like I've actually executed and I've, I've raised myself up on, on some sort of artistic craftsman uh, directorial level that's really important to me like muse knights of cydonia is an example of that it's not right. it's not something that i would say like any britney spears fan would know or a late taylor taylor swift fan would know but on a personal level when i watch that video uh, i know what i did uh, you know i know what i did for myself uh, i know what i accomplished I, I i know uh it's special for myself and that's so i guess what i'm saying is that there's things that you do for yourself that are so completely fulfilling on an artistic level uh, right. that, that it's just pleasing to actually watch these things again and experience them because I literally made it to an audience of me versus things that I know that like I, I try to make it for myself, but I know that I have a much bigger responsibility of trying to connect you know, millions of people for an artist and sell the record and justify the budget that I've been given. You know? um, and I, and I, I like those things too. Don't get me wrong. But if I were to put a Mount Rushmore of personal effects, it, I don't know what those five would be, but like Muse would probably be up there. My Chemical Brothers video where I, I, I did a Kung Fu film and, and had them essentially just wrap it out you know? <laughs> 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 and, and just doctored it. This is, and this is way before deep fakes and things like that. Yes, it was fire. There was a, there's a Blink-182 video I did uh, where it was like sort of my – Joseph Kahn meets Michelle Gondry thing where I, uh, I, I did what I, I had this theory that, I, and this is why it was so personal for me. I, I was thinking really hard about what a five dimensional edit is because, because <laughs> I was reading all these physics books and, um, and I was really into this idea that we live in four dimensions, three dimension of space and fourth dimension is time. Cause I've always studied relativity and Einstein and there's still always an Asian part of me that loves science. You know, my parents got me into uh, science and it never really left me. You know, it, it, I just sort of diverted it into filmmaking, but I, I, I read this whole thing about like how, uh, how people in higher dimensions, uh, would look at lower dimensions and how lower dimensions look at higher dimensions. Like for instance, if you're a two dimensional like human being and two dimensions is just one, one flat plane, right? Um, you would not, if you drew a, a square around that flat plane, you could not escape the plane because you would hit against the wall, right? Cause you, cause you're trapped in the two dimensional plane where you're just walking, doing that. The only way to hop out of a two dimensional plane is to hop out in the third dimension, right? Then you can actually go on the, uh, the, the Z space and just go up, you know, and that's how you hop up by going third. But a two dimensional person can't think like that. So I know that we, we do four dimensional edits and we compress time and we go forward in time and stuff like that. But I was thinking, how do we do a five-dimensional edit where you can solve something that you can't do in real life? That that we, because we live in four dimensions, we cannot, we, we can literally, we, we can't conceive of how this particular loop happened. And right. so, I, I, so then I created this video where uh, I, I split the screen into three sections, and I and I had uh, like essentially 
I, I said that the the video would take place uh, like in three different periods of time, right? The top would be the future, the middle would be the present, and the middle and the past. And I would tell the story of three people cheating on a girl at the same time, you know? And so that you would then dolly in and out and stuff like that. You'd see that it's three different guys, but they all kind of mimic each other. But then somewhere through the video, the guy on the top would be on the bottom, the guy in the middle would be in this, and you would not see the edit. It would just happen naturally. And so essentially, the past is subtly in the middle. The future's on the bottom, the present's on the top. Then it switches around again and stuff like that. And I'm telling the story all at the same time. So the ability to tell three stories at the same time and then loop around those things, you're hopping into another dimension. That's you're actually creating a five-dimensional edit uh, and solving something that you cannot do in real life in, in, in normal perceptions of four dimension. And I was like, okay, now that's on my Mount Rushmore. I, it was an idea that I had. I executed. It worked. Maybe other people don't understand it, but for me, it's a personal thing. You did like this it. for Blink-182? Yeah, when it, it's called Always. But you don't you don't go into uh, by the way when you uh, uh, you don't go to Blink One Eight Two and say I'm going to make a five dimensional edit and I, you, know, <laughs> you just tell them I'm going to do a story about you know uh, Travis Barker cheating on 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 the th- uh, the other two of you uh, and we're going to do it in split screen. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's so deep, man. And uh, I, I love, love the way and, and and which which leads me to my next question, which is your process. Uh, you're a very distinct type of filmmaker. You have an amazing ability to combine, you know, VFX and, you know, CGI with your work. So I'm just curious to know in terms of, you know, what's your process for coming up with ideas? You know, I know for our experiences, you know, sometimes it's collaborations. Sometimes, you know, you pull out pages from a fashion magazine or watch movies. Um, I'm just curious to know because you're, again, you have so much work, so much different uh, flavors and, and tools that you use for your work. Like, for instance, you know, you, even though I don't want to skip the line, but you, you, your Janet Jackson video that you did for Doesn't Really Matter, like very, ja- you know, Japanese influence culture and, and it feels very animated. So I'm just curious to know, like, how do you come up with your ideas? Like, where do you start from? And where, where's, what's that thought process like for you? Well, uh, I always start uh, from a contrarian point of view. And it, it, it even has less to do with my ideas and more to do with my personality. Um, I'm, a, I'm a naturally, on a weird level, I'm a friendly, argumentative person. You know, like, <laughs> like I, I always take the flip side of an argument. And if things get too popular, because remember, I'm the guy that didn't get laid for many, many years. So, uh, <laughs> so if people are getting along... Um, I kind of resent it on a weird level, you know, like I, I kind of like, there's a piece of me that goes, you guys are all now in this click and I was never part of that click. I'm going to understand your click and, and I'm going to understand it better than you. And I'm going to flip your click. I'm going to flip your click, you know? <laughs> so no matter what idea I have, and I, 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 it's, it's the natural sort of state of how I think like, uh, if, uh, if someone wears red, I will wear blue. You know, <laughs> you know if, uh, if someone uh, uh, says up, I go down. But I'm going to try to make it in a way that you still like it. You know, mm. <laughs> and, and to me, that's the most fun. So if everybody's doing one thing, I try to find what's the opposite and how can I make people like it, you know? So it, it's an example. Like Janet Jackson, you know, here's my chance to work with one of my divas. One of my, like one of my five, you know, uh, like foundations of pop, right? And, you know, what do I do with her? Do I, do I do the videos that I've seen before? Do I do the videos that people are expecting? Maybe I'll just combine her with uh, 
Japanese animation. You know, no one's who would ever think to combine Janet Jackson with uh, Japanese animation. Um, and not, and I don't know, I don't remember exactly what my thought process was in getting there, you know. Uh, but I just remember the 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 collision of Japanese art pop with Janet Jackson felt both wrong and yet completely right to me because yeah. you know because it felt like she is a piece of America and she feel she felt like a foundational aspect of American pop culture at that point. The Jacksons uh, at that point, and people forget that you know J- Janet Jackson, Michael, they come from the Jackson Five, uh, who are a foundational setting for essentially modern pop music. Yep. And and so uh, the Japanese are always twisting, uh, you know, American stuff, but loving it, but like creating their own versions of it. So what if I made an actual tactical version of that where you take Janet Jackson, turn her Japanese, but then come out more American somehow? You know, it's like, I don't know what the like, <laughs> but it seemed like a wonderful, interesting experiment. And she gave me two and a half million dollars to do it. So whatever. You know? <laughs> no, for me, that video, I remember when it came out, it was so innovative and just something different because to your point, like, you know, I'm, you know, uh, Pleasure Principal Janet Jackson, Rhythm Nation Janet Jackson. So it was great to see her in a whole different setting, still being her, but just a whole different world, a whole different vibe. And it was, I love the colors, everything was vibrant. And it was, you created a different type of texture for her that really transcended her, her superstardom to a whole other place. And, and like, to your point, it's about trying to figure out, okay, I got this amazing artist who's music royalty, how do we continue pushing the envelope for her, right? And that's one thing the Jacksons have always done. They always figured out, how do I go further and further and further? And when that video came out, which at a time that was like heavy rotation on MTV, like you could not get away from that video. But what I loved about it was the escapism of it, right? Like I wanted to be where she was at, her cool little apartment, the little robotic little fucking dog, the fucking colors and everything. And and then what was really awesome was how you created that 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 platform they were dancing on that was kind of moving with them. There was kind of, it was like, it was alive. It was robotic. It was just really, it just felt futuristic because yeah. Well, you know, what's uh, really fun about that video too is because I, uh, I had over the last, couple years preceding that, I started understanding the difference between framing things for, uh, you know, 185 and remember, because remember back then te- uh, uh, TVs were 4.3, you know, they're 133 frames and it was, everything was boxed. And then if you letterbox something, people would always scream at you, record labels and go, you know, like, <laughs> we don't want this video letterbox. We want the, we want the whole screen because everybody complains that you letterbox it. And remember, and you would try to squeeze between a 235 screen. And remember doing it back then was actually contra- con- controversial because TVs weren't that boy- big, especially the CRT TVs. Remember a 27 inch screen back then was a big TV. So if you put letterbox on there, people are like actually having to lean in and, and see a whole lot less image. And I started realizing that like, uh, you know, framing for two, three, five, even though I loved it from on a cinematic point of view, wasn't that effective on a 27 inch screen because it was, the image was so small. And, and what also ended up happening is that when you're in a sitting in a movie theater, a, a two, three, five screen, when it's blown up in front of you, your head actually moves to see the screen. Your eyes mm-hmm. have to do a lot. So there's a lot more tension in the in your little your, your um, ocular vision and your ocular muscles work more. You're actually more involved, you know, seeing the tension up there and the compositions. 
And on a screen, you're seeing everything else. So you're always having the sort of God's eye view of it. You're never immersed into it. And 235 creates pretty images, but you're sort of like removed from it. And what I realized that on these four, three TVs, what all you can really do is play with depth. You know, and there and I study other directors. There's like this guy Marcus Nispel that that always shot on wide-angle lenses before hype did, um, and and he would always do these movements where the heads would turn on a wide-angle lens. It was like kind of his signature thing. They would always uh, they would always turn their heads right. And and what I realized is that manipulating the center of the screen was really kind of the way that you effectively compose for four three images. And so on Janet Jackson, I took that even a step further. If you actually look at it, it's actually framed one one. I actually put the bars on the side of the screen, you yeah. know, and and took away that real estate and framed literally for the middle. And and you, and actually you, did, created- a, you did Instagram before Instagram. Yeah, and, and so uh, the the reason why some of those tilts feel so cool because the tension is now going up and down in a Japanese way than left and right, you know. Um, and that was an experiment, and I. I got two and a half million dollars to experiment with a concept like that was just insane, right? Like, how cool is that as a film school? That's wild, yeah, man. Fil- music videos was really was a film school for damn near all of us, um, especially then. Just, you know, the growth that we all went through from the beginning of our careers to where we are now. It is yeah. a little crazy to think that someone was giving us hundreds of thousands of dollars to, you know, learn. You know what else that's really cool about that particular video? Uh, that video came out in... Um, 2000 of like March or something, you know, or May of 2000. And there's a shot there. I go through the center of a car and I go through the engine and come back out and stuff like that. And I remember like at that point, I was like, I, I need to stop being too cinematic on these videos because people are going to start ripping my shit off and, and, and I'm doing all this <laughs> stuff like, and, and they're going to take my techniques a year fucking later, fast and the first fat and furious comes out and he goes through the engine and all that shit. Now, normally I would say that's a coincidence, but here's the thing. I shot that um, when I was at a company called Original Films, <laughs> which produced Fast and Furious. Mm. So, like, so I was like, uh, and that's actually why I did. If you ever see the Mob Deep video, um, where I, I forgot the name of it, it's the action, it's, it's based on Die Hard, right? Um, if you actually watch that video, um, I purposely locked the camera down. And I decided to do an entire uh, action movie with just a locked off camera. I didn't do any my my signature like swirly cameras, except for maybe one part, because I was like, fuck it. Um, I'm not going to reveal all the tricks that I could do on action movies because they're just going to fucking steal that shit. Hollywood's going to do that. And <laughs> I'm going to challenge myself to do an action movie using nothing but lockoffs. And, and, and uh, I got a lot out of it, actually. But the impetus of that was actually me going, um, I don't want to reveal any of my cinematic ideas. That's wild, man. That's wild. I mean, you know, and that takes me to something, you know, your um, torque and really the the Power Rangers thing you did. Yep. You talk about like talk about your Hollywood, you know, your Hollywood experience and that whole thing coming out of music video and dealing with that kind of, I guess, prejudice is, is a way to put it, the way Hollywood would, looks. Well, especially OK. Back then. Well, OK. So, uh, uh. I feel like I was always a step behind like the previous generation of video directors because I was I'm an intermediate, you know. Uh, I'm actually I came a little bit uh, definitely before like I, I think the people lump like me, you, X, me, Dave, you know, like we're kind of like in that sort of same sort of historical world together and hype and all that, you know. But I've been doing it so long, I'm actually a little bit like in between Mark Romanic and Spike Jones and all those guys, and then the next generation, you know, because mm-hmm. I just happen to be doing like really like like obscure 
gangster rap videos, but I've been doing it for like quite a bit. And, and actually my first video was in 1990, you know? So um, I always felt like there's these propaganda, awesome directors that, and I was this runt of the litter that was just never able to break through, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it was not until quite frankly, uh, like when I got to Hollywood and, and I was doing my videos, people completely ignored me because I had nothing but rap videos on, on my reel. And they all thought I was a, like this whack. They didn't even know, by the way, they didn't even know I was Asian because uh, back then they could just hear my voice. Um, so they didn't know what race I was. They just thought I was just some sort of rapper guy <laughs> doing rap videos <laughs> and, and his videos are whack. Cause they, they literally just dismissed it. Yeah. They go, these are the cheap videos. He's not doing the cool English band that for $150,000, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, sorry, X, what was your question? <laughs> oh, about, talk about the Hollywood but, thing. Yeah. 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 So, but what ended up happening is that suddenly, uh, rap videos got bigger because rap music took off, you know, like around the mid early nineties, uh, I ended up just being on a rocket ship. You know, I just happened to be working on these rap videos. And suddenly the rocket took off and I just happened to be on it going, where the fuck am I going? You know, <laughs> and uh, and suddenly, you know, Puffy came in and 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 Snoop came in and Death Row and all that stuff. And all these videos kind of exploded onto the scene. And suddenly they were spending the money and 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 the rock video started spending less money. And next thing you knew, especially by the end of the uh, uh, 90s and into the 2000s, it was pop and and um, it was pop and, and rap that was really the, the main source of money if you want to do videos. So anyways, I, I did end up becoming like a big time director literally by the end of the 90s uh, uh, by, by, by luck on a weird level. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't think uh, um, – look, I could have all the talent in the world, but the fact that I just happened to be doing rap videos and it, it, the, the ship took off with me on it allowed me to, uh, to do multi-million dollar videos uh, – Simple as that. Like, mm. if I wasn't there, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> you know, it was just, I was just really fucking lucky, right? But here's the thing about that luck. I was used to having a certain le level of control. Um, you know, like, when you do these videos, you fight. You're always having edit battles with the, uh, the, uh, the record label. But here's the thing about those edit battles. They happen after. While you're shooting, you are God, you know? You can pitch the artist. You can say, I, want you, I, want, I, want, I know we're going to shoot this wall, but go over there, stand there. Let's relight it and, and use that wall. They're going to do it, you know? Yeah. Uh, you, you say, like, oh, like, that, that chair is red. Let's replace it with an elephant. Go get me an elephant. <laughs> and then you get, you know, it's like a, a, yep. all, whatever crazy thing you can shift to the idea as long as you can afford it or pay for it you're going to get it done when I went into my first movie um, for Warner Brothers called Torque I went with that attitude like thinking that's the way you make movies that is not mm. the way you make movies you know <laughs> like, <laughs> once you have that script done and they board it out and they, and, they, and, and they put a schedule together and they put a budget together you must shoot what's on the schedule they, they, they map out your day and they're like you know at 12 o'clock you've got to do this scene at 2 o'clock you've got to do this scene and you better have that scene done by then if you're, if you're behind schedule you're not going to come up with more money you're going to get fired you know so I yeah. had no clue zero of how Hollywood worked. And I remember like going in there going, oh, I could just change this line of dialogue. And, and then the script supervisor would turn to the producer and go, no, he just changed the line of dialogue. And the producer would come to me, Joseph, make him say exactly what's on the page. We just paid this writer $250,000 a week for this line of dialogue. You must have him say it. And I go, okay, I made him say it. Can I say my line? Yes. So at the 16th take, I would do the improv session, you know? Um, yeah. And so I, I went into it and it was a very strange process. Um, 
I, I, I'll be honest with you. I did not think I enjoyed actually making the movie. Um, it, I, and when I was finished, I didn't think I actually wanted to make a movie ever again uh, because I thought if this is the way you make movies, it seems so incredibly uncreative. Um, I went through the test screening process and all that stuff. Now, by no fault of their own, the movie did not do well. Uh, it, 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 and I, I, I take full responsibility for it because the movie came out 70% of what I wanted to do. Like I went in there trying to make essentially – the Joseph Kahn experience, which is irreverent, funny, weird, big, pop, colorful, uh, with random ideas popping from left and right. And also the fuck you attitude of I'm going to do you go left, I'll turn right. You know, I tried to do that with a biker movie, which is the weirdest idea in the world. And also <laughs> uh, I was infusing Japanese pop animation and I it starred Ice Cube. So who is this Japanese animation weirdo contrarian thing starring Ice Cube for? Who is the audience for that? Just myself, you know? Mm. So uh, the movie came out, people bashed it. But I'm going to be honest with you. I love my movie. I, I think it's dope. I, I watch it right now. I look back on it. It's not a perfect movie, but it's 70% of what I wanted. And, and 70% in my world is like, like one of those videos that like are, are pretty good. Uh, not full uh, execution, but I fought my battles and got most of it so that I, I got it swayed my way. So when I look back on it, I'm like, this is a dope-ass movie, and I, I'm proud of it. And if you don't get it, fuck you. I don't care. <laughs> and, and, what, and what about – talk to me about – because you were the inside of it, the, your Power Rangers fan film, because you sparked an entire conversation in Hollywood. Like, okay, it was cute when it was – maybe a kid with some talent in their friends. This is a serious director with real actors doing a fucking, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Making a Power Rangers film. Like this looks, this, this doesn't look like a bunch of, this doesn't look like a fan film. What the fuck are we, what's going on? And you, you just changed the whole fucking conversation. You, sna- like, you, you snapped, you snapped on that fan film. I remember when I watched it, like the fact that you made this R rated, like, drama for this just for for this 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 kind of uh this this kind of teen action uh 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 show like the fact that you brought the grit and the rawness to it like i thought it was awesome and i know oh, i know that shit became controversial but I, yeah i'd love to hear yeah what, about what was that like for you because i mean what did it feel like you were in the the like the in the kitchen of some controversy like what was that i i made it because i was pissed off uh, and, <laughs> and um, uh, like, I feel like I am, uh, gosh, it's, it, it, you always get in trouble when you talk from an arrogant point of view. And I am very arrogant on many levels, to be honest with you, because I know what my skill set is. I'm super confident, you know, like if you like the way I sort of do it, if you talk to LeBron James or Michael Jordan, and you ask them, are they great? They're going to say, yes, of course I am, because I put in the work and, and I put in more work than anybody else. Like Kobe Bryant, like before, like he went in there and he would shoot like, you know, three hours of free throws before anyone would come on the court. I do the same shit on filmmaking. I'm constantly studying and on all that. And I got pissed off that Hollywood was like kind of ignoring me as they do all directors and, and quite frankly, any director that, that fails their first movie, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I knew that they were going to come up with this Power Rangers thing. I knew it was going to suck. I knew that they're going to do that. And so I, I was going to be the Osama bin Laden of fan films. I was going to actually <laughs> go out and knowing that the studios were going to pump a lot of money into their version of it. I was going to go and stealthily make my version in a way that they cannot do. Uh, and they would be insane if they did it. I was going to make it so violent that it would be an NC-17. I was going to have them snort coke. I was going to have boobs and whatever the hell I could put in there. 
and I was just gonna say fuck you Hollywood, and I was gonna put it out, and 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 it was for me it was kind of a joke, uh, it, but the joke isn't that it's not taken seriously. The joke is I I literally construct a very very solid piece of work where every particular scene is at face value exciting. It's exciting to watch the fights. It's exciting to see these uh, the intrigue. It's exciting to see all that stuff. But what did I actually do when I'm done with it? I took a kid's show and made it seriously intense. Like These are Power Rangers. These are like the stupidest fucking characters on the planet, you know? Uh, and you're taking them completely seriously. And that's a joke for me. That's the joke, you know? It's mm. not that, that that what I made is a joke. It's it's the concept is a joke, you know? Um, and I, I put it out. And also I knew there was, a, there was kind of a cheat code there because YouTube tends to blow up fan films. Like you can make the shittiest fan film and say Spider-Man, you know, versus Spider-Man versus, uh, you know, Superman, you know, the untold story and it'll get a million views, you know? So I said, well, if I actually put my skill set on this, I think I can probably get more than a million views. So it was an experiment. Um, I got it out there. I released it on a Tuesday night when I knew the lawyers were all asleep so that I had like, (laughs) (laughs) so I knew that I'd have at least a couple hours of it circulating before they shut me down, but they did shut me down by 9am and I mean, I was about to get sued out of existence, but uh, uh, <laughs> oh, were they really, they're going to sue you? They, like, how, how real did it get? It's like, well, I mean, they didn't say they were going to sue me, but the implication was there. You're going to take it off a cease and desist. A cease and desist means if you try it again, you're going to get sued. So essentially they didn't say I'm going to sue you, but they their lawyers essentially wrote a letter saying don't do it again or you'll get sued. But um, the media caught on, the fans caught on, everybody wanted to see it and it it it, it came back on because people demanded it, you know? And I, and honestly, I, I was just going to put it out there. And it, if it, if it was going to get buried, so be it. Um, it was, an, it would be my, my, my short film blink 182 thing or my muse, uh, Knights of Cydonia. It's like, I know what I did and I'm happy that it exists. And if it got buried, whatever, I'm going to move on to other things because I'm a successful director and I can go make money other ways, you know? Uh, but, um, it was just kind of an experiment for myself. Did the industry react? Did you get calls? What, what happened after that? Or it just is a thing? What, what was the after effect? Tons. I, 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 I took a meeting, uh, gosh, uh, not to get myself in trouble because I, I have to be somewhat political, but eh, fuck it, whatever. So I, 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 I met with uh, Leo Di- uh, DiCaprio's producer at, over at Appian Way, right? And they were, they were pitching me on this Robin Hood movie, right? And I read it and uh, in it, like Robin Hood is like teaming up with like Al-Qaeda essentially to, to blow up bombs. And it was like, I was like, this is the craziest script. It's kind of interesting, but it, it felt so politically weird. Like, I don't know what they were saying. I don't know what the film was about. I th- it just seemed like they were just taking like weird things in, in the, in the, the, the universe, like, you know, uh, Islamic terrorism and, and Occupy Wall Street and combining them together and trying to turn, sell it as a Hollywood film somehow, but I don't think it was so convoluted. I didn't really understand it. So uh, I walk in and the writer's there and the, the producer is there and they say, Joseph, what do you think of the script? Tell me the honest truth. And what I realize now is you're never supposed to actually tell them the honest truth. You're supposed to, <laughs> <laughs> like if you want the job, you're supposed to tell them all the great things about it and how you're going to make it great on screen. That's all they want to hear. I had no intention of making the movie anyways. Like I didn't want, like I, like I was like, screw it. So I just literally told him the truth. I told him all the reasons why it sucked and what, how it should change and how this doesn't work and this doesn't work. And I remember like uh, afterwards, the producer called up my, uh, my, um, 
<laughs> my agent and said, that was the most arrogant conversation I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> he is so arrogant. It's beyond, but I was just being honest, you know, and, 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 and this is the thing I've learned. If I'm going to do these movies, I've got to be completely honest. And if they think that I'm arrogant because I'm honest, then I can't work with them anyways. It's like, we're never going to do good work together. Cause if they just need somebody to go up there and, and just sort of be the vessel uh, to to plug in to their system of like professional DP, professional editor, professional writer and all that. I'm not that guy, you know? I'm just not that guy. And quite frankly, I'm going to make more money doing commercials, you know? Like then, well, then Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the the thing with us especially coming out is like you said, coming out of music video, I don't th- I think this is the part there is no other part of filmmaking unless you write and direct and perhaps produce your own movies where you have that kind of control as a director when no one tells you nothing, you know, like you're saying, you know, like, Oh, let's just go shoot on another wall. I have stories where I just completely changed the concept. <laughs> just completely changed the fucking idea. It's nowhere near what I wrote down on paper. And, um, and like you said, people just go with it. Like, Hey, let's, I know, I know we're going to do a, a beach video, but what if we did an in studio performance video? Sure. X and away we go. And then you walk into, I mean, I, I don't know if you had that experience in commercials. I had that experience in commercials as well, where I walked in with my music video sensibility where I'm running this thing. And they're like, no, 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 you're making our thing. And they just, and it was this, this collision. And even till now, it's very hard to get in on a movie that, you know what I'm saying? From the beginning. Well, well, I don't do that in commercials, to be honest with you. Uh, on commercials, I put on my super professional hat because I, I deal with like agencies and clients and it's, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with, things bigger than Hollywood, quite frankly, when you're doing a commercial for like Samsung. Yeah. Like they, I, I've, they grown, have, I've grown too. I don't, I've, I'm no longer yeah. hitting, but my early commercial days was. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like Samsung, yeah. Samsung can buy, you know, like Warner Brothers five times over, you know? So it's like yeah. you're dealing with a whole different, it's a whole different level of uh, corporate, you know? So I, yeah. I respect that. And if you want to work in that particular business, uh, you've got to learn how to sort of play that particular game. I just don't have the patience to play it on, something so personal and interesting, like where it's two years of my life and they're paying me nothing. Like, what is in it for me? What is in it for me? Like yeah. what, you know, like. And, and the audience looks at you like you made it from scratch. That's the yeah. thing on top of it. You, you get, you get brought in on these movies after, like you said, they've, the producer's but, there, the script is done, but the audience is like, you made this. But, but I will also say this. Um, I, I don't think there is a direct correlation between what we do in music videos and feature films. I think they're actually two very completely different beasts. And I do them all because I've done television shows. I've actually produced my own movies. I've, I've done Detention and Bodied, uh, which I've literally put all my own money into. So I had completely off the grid. And having done short films and, 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 and like the whole gamut of it, the, the, th- the, the skill set for a feature film – um, the reality is the the stuff that we do on a practical level as directors on music videos, the the pure unbridled aesthetic creativity, uh, the ability to wrap a day and, and manipulate a set and all that stuff, that only goes so far when you're when you start going into long form stuff. Because at the end of the day, what's really going to drive that stuff is storytelling. You know, not right. the not the small little pieces of flash, which are always going to be useful on, on a technical level, but an understanding of the human condition, an understanding of human wants and needs, understanding of human beings. Mm-hmm. That is more important for a director in in, um, in feature films than anything else. In fact, the vast majority of feature film directors that are very successful are actually technically horrible. Like I, from my point of view, these guys are amateurs uh, when when they point their camera. They don't know what they're doing. You know, uh, they have director, they have DPs that 
that sort of slide it up and, and frame it and things like that and look for those things and, and, and is always an amalgamation. But ultimately, they're not really speaking the language, and, uh, but they're speaking a more important language, which is the human language. And, and that stuff to me is something that escapes most artists in general, especially mm. when you're so focused on the aesthetics of it. So I understand why, why studios would be afraid of like people like you or me. Um, because we are such visualists and we come from a different world. Um, I, I I can only speak for myself. They're completely underestimating the rest of me, though, because I am not just the aesthetic guy. I do know something about human beings, maybe even more than they think that they know. Oh, completely. Well, you know, look, I can when I look at a director's work, I can see their intelligence, especially uh, coming out of music videos. I, you, you give me someone, you give me a three, five, or five music videos. I, I know I, I, I know where your head's at, you know, by what you're doing with the camera, the type of stories you're telling. Just I, I, can, I can dig in and, and understand what's going on, going on with it, but they can't, you know? Um, and it's, I mean, it is, it, 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 is, it is what it is, but as a, as a director, that freedom, I mean, there's just a freedom that comes out of music videos, like you said, that you just don't get in any other realm. But the film journey. But I'll say this though. I think when we're talking about filmmaking, there's two there's two fields you're playing in, right? If we're talking indie film versus studio film. And I think for the for the fact for both of you, you know, going into the studio film uh sector of this business, we all know the business, right? Like it's it's you're you're dealing with suits, you're dealing with all this uh, information and numbers and testing. And I, I think it would be interesting to see both of you play in the world of doing an indie film and having that same freedom that you guys have in your music videos just to make art and say, fuck it, right? Um, and I, I think that's where that's where I think you guys will excel more because if you look at, if look, look, look what happened to uh, Darren Aronofsky, right? When Darren Aronofsky was making his indie films, you couldn't fucking talk to him. His first studio film, when he did that Noah film, I forgot the name of it, but it's that Noah-inspired film, which was a studio thing. That's when shit came came crashing because now the suits are coming in like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Where's that camera going? And who's our audience? And blah, 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 blah. But when he was doing his indie films, like Requiem for a Dream, like he was having full autonomy of his of his creativity. Right? right and like Wes Anderson, like Wes Anderson in the studio system, there's no way you would get those films that he makes. Well, I I, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but I do do independent movies, and and I've mm-hmm. uh, I've I've financed it myself. So I did one called Detention uh, that I released in 2010, and and Sony bought it. And um, interesting thing, it's kind of a split audience. I love I love I love when I do things that uh, I'll, I'll always tell you when I fuck up. I did not fuck up on Detention. It did exactly what I wanted it to do. It was fun. Yeah. It was a fun movie. So, uh, so like, I think that like, uh, it got like, like a, like a 43% on Rotten Tomatoes, but the, but the 43 that loves it, loves it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did Power Rangers and then I did, uh, Bodied, uh, which came out, which you asked me what I wanted to do after Power Rangers. I just decided to roll my money into Bodied and I made that and it released on, um, we got into Toronto Film Festival and yep. it won the Audience Award there. Then we went to the Ooh. American Film Institute and it won the Audience Award. Then we went to Fantastic Film. Won the, it kept winning Audience Awards, right? Mm. But it was so controversial. Have you guys even seen it? I haven't seen Body. It's the battle. The battle rap. Yeah, I've seen it. It's the battle. It's the battle rap film. It was executive produced, I believe, by Eminem, and it's pretty much like a spinoff of that whole world, right? But- 
but it's 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 a little again being Mr. Contrarian. I'm going in there and you're watching the story of like this like this white woke college student who goes into like studying essentially black people, right? And and he wants to understand like how black people use the N-word, right? <laughs> so it's kind of like a weird little concept right off the top. But yeah. then he gets sucked into a battle and he wins and he turns out that he can win. And then it's a comedy where suddenly in order for him he starts becoming a battle rapper. But in order to win, he has to become more racist. You know, like he has to take <laughs> it's, 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 it's satire, right? Yeah. It's satire. And, and and what's interesting is that in the beginning, you like him because he's an underdog and and you like. But then as he as the movie goes on, he gets becomes more and more of a piece of shit, you know. And the mm. thing that blows people's minds is that essentially what you've actually been watching is a villain the whole time. You don't know it till the very last scene. And yet the villain wins. And so it's one of those endings that Hollywood never allow. Like my villain wins and it seems like a happy ending, but remember the villain is alone and he's, he's kind of fucked himself and he has no friends and and he's won, (laughs) but it's like a, like he's a kingdom of nothing, you know, but it's not like a happy ending. And it's, but it sounds, but, but the trick that makes it feel like a happy ending is that my music makes it feel like a happy ending. My filmmaking makes it feel like, and I love that sort of contrarian filmmaking. And, And so, I'm, I love it on a personal level, but it's it's not using filmmaking in the way that Hollywood wants you to use those those tools. You know, I'm doing the exact opposite of what people tell you to do. Right. Well, as you know, like the, the problem with Hollywood as a whole is um, they like to be formalic. And to your earlier point, Joseph, like you always want to go the opposite direction, right? And it's exactly what you did with Power Rangers. It's exactly what you did even with this film where it's like, you know what, fuck it. Let me let me turn this shit on side of its head, right? Like your whole approach to what you do is like, let me turn it inside out. Let me let, let me just let me just throw this let me just throw this thing out there and and if you accept it, cool, and if not, fuck you. And I feel like that to me is what a, being a filmmaker is. It's like you got to make a film at the end of the day that you're passionate about and you're and, and you're driven. And at the same time, it has to say something, right? Because that, to me, that film has so much, you know, underlying messaging going on because it, it's like, it's the same thing that Eminem was always talking about with like going back to your, your, your it's, it's switch it back, like going back to your, your Grammy, your, 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 you know, your Grammy win of a film, I'm sorry, a music video for Eminem for without me like where he's you know using these controversial images of elvis because the whole thing is about elvis everyone talks about like how racist elvis is but at the same time his whole culture was influenced by you know black people from memphis right never ever acknowledged them never ever acknowledged the fact that who he's influenced by like you look at the stones like yeah we're influenced by bb king and and muddy waters and blah 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 but and i think that says a lot about our industry and it says a lot about society and I, I respect that. And and talking about Eminem, for the fact that he's such a controversial figure, um, I guess my question for you is, when you did collaborate with him on Without Me, what was that like? Because, you know, for the fact that here it is, you got yourself and Eminem are two people who don't really give a fuck. <laughs> so you guys are pretty much are cut from the same cloth where you're both renegades and you guys coming together and literally like, you guys are like the the red and and the blue wire of the bomb working together, you know, creating such great work. And I'm just curious to know how that collaboration was. I for me, I just thought just hearing you now, getting to know you now as a as the the man behind the lens and understanding uh, the controversial f- uh, figure that Eminem is. How was that collaboration working with M on your uh, on your first Grammy win in 2003 for Without Me? 
It's an interesting thing because before I actually worked on that, I was actually trying to convince him. Uh, I was actually going to do the Crow 4. What? And you know who was, yeah, and you know who was going to star in the Crow 4? DMX. DMX was going to be the Crow. Wow. And I had DMX. So, so, wow. And, and Rest I, in and peace I had, DMX. <clears throat> and I, let me tell you something, guys. Uh, part of what happened is that I got, I got thrown into black and white culture by accident. You know, all I wanted to do was make some music videos like Michael Jackson and Madonna and Prince. I didn't know what that meant. I just want to make those cool sex videos that they were doing, you know. But in the <laughs> middle of it, as I, as I got in, by the, by the end of the 80s, that unified racial grouping that those people represent, that sort of ambiguous, like Michael basically turned into, I don't know what he turned into, but it wasn't a black, traditional black guy. He actually changed his look, right? Prince himself was a light-skinned black guy, you know? And so he was sexy, but like, it's like, take his shirt off and all that stuff like that. You, 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 he seemed kind of like beyond race at a certain point. There was a point at which it, in the eighties, race seemed to be fusing together into this sort of ambiguous uh, mocha color, you know? And then like, as I was hopped into gangster rap and then the, the words of the streets came into the music culture. Right. Um, and people became more politically correct. Remember like in the eighties, people always talked about political correctness, but it wasn't a really a thing in the nineties. Uh, it really became a thing. And now we all call it wokeness and social justice warrioring and all that stuff. It's really kind of exploded into his own thing. By the time I had finished, uh, like got into, um, got into music videos, it was my turn to make these pop videos. Pop died. Like that sort of racial sort of combination that was happening went its own way. It, it literally bifurcated into here's gangster rap and here's grunge. White mm. people stay over here. Black people stay over here. And literally pop died. Like, New Kids on the Block went away. New Edition went away. Like, like whatever the hell happened, Michael Jackson went away. It was, it was just people sort of went into their own racial territories. And I'm the Asian guy in the middle of it that, that doesn't really understand black culture and didn't really understand white culture. I'm, I'm an immigrant from Korea and Italy, you know? So I'm in the middle of all this, and but I have a skill set and I'm suddenly doing all these gangster rap videos. And then because of my authenticity in gangster rap, uh, like uh, record companies came to me because they, I don't, I don't know if you remember this X, there's a point at which before Britney Spears came on, on, on the map, the reason why they came to me for Britney Spears, because they, they were trying to pers- sell her like a black artist, essentially, you know, mm. like they needed R and B directors to do Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys and Christina Aguilera and all that stuff. They needed people with street cred because these, these, these new white pop stars needed street cred. They, they didn't, they weren't carved out as pop stars at the point. They're carved, carved out like Backstreet Boys was pitched to me as a white Jodeci. That's how they literally pitched it to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and, and the funny thing is like, I remember Jimmy Iovine when he was running Interscope, he once told me something super profound. He said, there is no pop music. It's just, black music it's just white people doing black music there is no such thing Ooh. as pop music you know that's the, so. that's the realest that's the realest fucking quote ever and he's so spot on with that, with that quote. jimmy Iovine. he knows yeah the yeah defiant so, ones baby the defiant ones so you know i'm in the middle of all this and, I, and i'm especially in the middle of a in a race culture war you know and i'm navigating it and trying to figure out you know how to sort of, and I'm, I'm desperately still trying to get back to Michael Jackson. Like that thing, that innocence that I had as a kid is all I want. <laughs> that's all I want to do. I want to make those damn Michael Jackson videos, you know? So that's, I made them. Uh, so I did it with the Britney Spears. I did it with the Taylor Swift. I did it with all that, you know, I, I'm just trying to get back to lo- those five 
legendary people. So when I do Eminem, it's kind of a, a weird situation because he's not part of that world that I, that I grew up with, right? It's now new territory. Here's a white guy, you know, that's really doing black music. I mean, rap is black music. There, there is no progenitor to uh, to <laughs> the Eminem. We say Elvis, right? To a degree, yes, but there were other people around that were kind of doing like rock and roll, and there's like other beats and stuff like. A guy actually just talking over like music on a beat that's just black you know and that's what he's doing and he's like a, a big superstar and stuff like that but the the interesting thing that about it that has always fascinated me is he doesn't say the n-word right and that is such a major part of rap you know it's almost like if you don't if you don't if you can't use it in an interesting way and you can't connect on a certain level it, it, it almost I, there's almost like this sort of monolithic rejection of you like what are you hiding you know mm. uh, it, it's an interesting thing and he can't say it right um he can never really attack uh, black artists either. He will attack every white artist and whatever and stuff like that. But his his wars of battle rapping is never with a, like there's a certain there's a certain level of uh, hands off, uh, knowing his place, carving a little area, and being respectful. And 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 to be honest, is it respectful or is it fearful? I don't know. You know, like it's the jury is out. Even though I, yeah. I love him and he's my friend. But the motivations are always going to be there. And that questioning of those motivations will always make him kind of a weird insider and outsider in yeah. the rap and, and, world. And on know? the flip side, no one ever came for him. It yeah, never, absolutely. It was never really it's just beefing with Eminem. Didn't, it's like when Benzino did it, everyone was like, what are you doing? Yeah. You so, know, like, well, let's be, let's be clear. Like, Regardless of the political nature of the industry and the fact that he was co-signed by one of the biggest, greatest producer rappers of all times, Dr. Dre. Like, like you said, I think Eminem came into this business being respectful, knowing his place. But at the same time, let's be clear. He's also said, Hey, you know, if we want to go there. Like I will fuck you up. <laughs> like yeah. I'm still eight mile Detroit Eminem. Like, right. so he plays it nice, you know, cause like, look, the record renegade with him and Jay-Z love Jay-Z. He's one of my, you know, he's, he's the goat, but, M at his food, right? So M also knows, like, he's he's treading lightly, but he also knows, like, the fact that when it comes to battle rapping, he's a whole other he's a whole other titan of an artist. So it's it's an interesting thing. Yeah. So like the uh, being kind of like the tip of his spear on those videos, where he's choosing to visualize what he's attacking. What am I really attacking? I'm attacking white culture. You know, like Ooh. all all his targets are things about white culture or white pop culture, or white artists and things like that. So I had no problems with that. That was fun for the time, you know. So, but uh, let's be fair. It's not really dangerous. Do you know what I'm saying? It, they're mm -hmm. fun. And, and and it's the funny thing about like white culture is that it lo white culture loves being noticed and laughing at itself. It, they, it's, it's like, it's one of those things that infuriates you. Like, fuck you. I hate you. Oh, that's hilarious. And they make fun of themselves. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, so it's like, a, it's an interesting place to be, but you know, it's uh, even, a, there, there is a little bit of that with me and Eminem because I kind of share a little bit of the same territory. Do you know, like I'm a guest, I, I'm a guest in um, black music. And I know that, you know, like, uh, and, and one of the things that's always been interesting about it is that I've never been able to fake my vernacular and speak like a black guy because it, it come off so fake and unreal. And, and it, I, I think it would come off pandering, you know? So the reality is, if you think that I, my, my, 
my years in gangster rap were these roses where everybody was just going, hey, beautiful Asian man, uh, how are you doing? <laughs> wasn't like that. I was getting made fun of people. Like I was threatened. I was like all that stuff. Like I saw both the positive and negative sides of it, you know, and I've always had the sort of feeling that I'm an I'm a guest. I'm an outsider. People respect me. But at the same time, uh, I'm a little weird to everybody, you know. But I'll be honest with you, I'm the same with the white world too. The Taylor Swifts and all of them don't know what to make of me either. You know, like mm. uh, they, they come to me and I'm an alien to them too. On a weird mm. level, maybe black people relate to me a little bit better because uh, maybe because I, I started with black people when I was younger, you know. But now that I interact with like some of these big pop artists, which is the strangest thing in the world to say, um, we don't necessarily talk on a, like I don't, I'm not talking to you like these people like we're buddies, you know, uh, I'm a I'm a nerd that wants to talk about physics and politics and and the contrarian points of view of philosophy and things but, like that. But Joseph, at the same time though, but let me give you let me give you your credit because even though you are who you are and you have your experiences, but at the same time, coming up in Texas, being around the streets, you are cultured, right? And I think that's why you have this amazing position where you could pivot and work with the biggest pop artists, the biggest rappers, the biggest R&B artists on the planet because you understand culture. And yeah. I think that's what makes makes your work distinctive because like you and X both worked with DMX, okay? And he is hardcore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's Rough Riders. Like cats don't understand like coming up in the era of Rough Riders, like black bikers, it was a whole different thing. Coming Yonkers streets and you can see you can see what it is you can see when uh, when a director gets into a into a seat that it's a little bit too hot for him and if he misses the target right look at the Pepsi commercial that came out when they missed the target not your Pepsi commercial I'm talking about the, <laughs> no, the, no. the right I'm talking about, <laughs> yeah I'm talking about the Kardashian one where like culturally they missed the target so yes you are being South Korean, the the great thing about you is you you came from a, a place where you understand culture. The fact that the fact that you traveled and at the time you you know you were bilingual and you lived in Italy and lived in New York City. These are like these are these are the epicenters of culture. So so as much as you don't realize that this shit has seeped into your work, and that's why you have connected with so many audiences. In so many different ways, because if you didn't, if you didn't connect with the cultural aspect of the art, you wouldn't get that. You wouldn't get that connectivity and and, and that relatability with the people that watch your shit, right? Well, you wouldn't be working yeah. with a Mob Deep. You wouldn't be working with a Wu Tang Clan. You wouldn't be working with a, 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 a Eminem and Rihanna if you didn't understand culture. And that's the that's the key thing for all of this shit. And and that's what pushes. That's what pushes the arts. Actually, that leads me to my next question. In terms of your next project, um, look, we all know you're still rocking it in commercials and music videos, but in terms of film projects, not to put you on the spot, but do you have an idea in terms of like thematically what you're going after? Like, is is your next film going to be a drama, action? Uh, are you like, have you, are you, do you have anything that you're thinking about without, without, spoiling alert and putting your shit out there but is there anything that you're approaching that you're that you're interested in that speaking to a different type of ethos well i've i've written a couple scripts actually um and i just don't know how to make them at this point you know because um one is about a 1950s japanese uh 
like rock and roll band, you know, that's set in the 1950s. Oh, cool. Um, and it's pretty wild. It's it's pretty funny and it's pretty awesome, but it's it's 80% in Japanese. I don't know how the hell I'm going to find the money for that particular film. Um, but so that's 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 there. Uh, I mean, I've got different things that I want to do and different things that it, it, it like, for instance, that would be a wonderful discussion of race, you know, the way I, I set that up uh, and, and an Asian perspective of race, by the way. But, you know, th- there's another aspect to me, too, is that I'm now a father. Um, I, I moved specifically from L.A. to Texas to raise my family uh, under a better circumstance uh, and um, and give them a life that I feel gives them the best shot at at the future. And, you know, as we all do, like once you have, uh, once you have kids, you, you think a bit differently and you're thinking more in terms of how, you know, what world do you want to build around them? And is filmmaking like on, on like a, a feature film level where the dad has to go away for two years. Does that make sense for my two year old right now? Uh, no, you know, um, mm. uh, you know, um, does it make sense, uh, you know, for my four-year-old or when she's five or six? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, I'd, I'd have to really take a look at it, f- figure out it's worth it, and figure out if I can actually raise my kid while I'm doing that because that's very important. I want to give her the best life possible um, on a weird level more than I want to make a movie right now, you know? And that's so amazing. does that mean does that mean that she gets to 18 years old? So I, I take a hiatus from filmmaking for 18 years, and then in 18 years I make my mo- movie? Maybe. I don't know. Asians live to 200 years anyway, so whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's amazing, man. And, and I love the fact that, uh, you're thinking that regard in terms of fatherhood, myself and X are both fathers and it's always trying to, it's always tricky trying to find that fine balance between, um, the business and being a father, being a family man. Um, it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough task. Look, it's, it's one thing that it's like, I don't think a lot of people quite realize about parenthood, right? Because it's, you're one person before parenting and you're another person after parenting, right? The person before parenting, before I had my kid, I would spend millions of dollars on bodied or detention. I don't care because I don't, who, who am I giving this money to? It's like, I'm comfortable. I can, you know, it's like, I, I can, I'm already eating the best meals. It's like, what am I gonna do with this cash? You know, it's, I, I, I don't want a Lamborghini. Like, I just want to make movies, right? But now that I have a kid and I'm thinking about private school and college and, you know, like things, uh, the, the eye-opening experience for me was uh, about, you know, during this COVID thing, right? Um, where we're all trapped and we're, we're all, where and I was in a hotel with my wife right before we finally got our house here. Um, my, 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 my daughter, she got sick and I didn't know if it was COVID or not, right? And we took her into the hospital. She, her fever was like 105 degrees, wow. you know? And and the doctor said she should be dead, 106, right? Jesus and they had Christ. to keep her in. They keep they had to keep her in the hospital and because the hospital was under COVID lockdown. Only one parent could be there, so my wife would be there. So I go back to the hotel room, and I don't know if my daughter's going to live or die. And all her toys are scattered around, right? And and you're just looking at all these toys, and you're like, if 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 she does not come back, and this is all I have for her, I don't know if I can live, you know? And and so I'm realizing. There is stuff more important than filmmaking out there. You know, I will never have another chance to see my daughter as a three-year-old or four-year-old or a five-year-old. So every day I have with her is a blessing. It's a and and I, by the way, I'm not religious, but it's an actual blessing. You know, so Ooh. uh I have different priorities right now, and and I know as a filmmaker the way that I process things, it's actually making me a better filmmaker. Um, I know that when I 
apply myself to commercials, I just have a deeper understanding of the whole human condition now. A, a big piece of me was missing before I had a kid. And now there's holes being plugged in that I didn't even realize. And, and a level of empathy that, uh, that I can now sort of lens through. Um, but in terms of the making a feature film, which is such an incredibly selfish act, um, I'm going to have to really think about it uh, in order to take that particular challenge and time away from my daughter. That's real, man. Shit, you got me thinking now. <laughs> Damn, Joseph, he made me feel guilty as shit. <laughs> shit is real, man. Shit is no, real. Shit is, shit is real, man. And and um, wow. Well, listen, Joseph, uh, we got two questions that we always uh, this is the wrap up phase of the of our of our talk. And and so happy that we've had this conversation with you. I learned so much about you as not only as a filmmaker, just as a human being. And I got so much respect and love for you, bro. Uh, man, shit, you got me, got me really now uh, all emotional shit. But, uh, but listen, okay. Two questions. These are always our two golden questions that we do in terms of our quote unquote wrap up. What rituals do you practice to recharge your creativity? Well, I mean, it's pretty obvious. I hang out with my family. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, say something here that uh, may piss off um, uh, anti-capitalists out there and and people who hate rich people. Um, I'm extraordinarily rich right now because I've done commercials for like years and years and years now. So uh, we we moved into a mansion, literally a mansion, you know. And I have like this movie theater that already came with the thing. It's like a $250,000 movie system. So I literally have like uh, like this screen that, that like when you sit in front, it's as big as an IMAX screen. I mean, it's not, oh, not but you know what I'm saying? Like relative to where you're sitting on the screen, it's, it's huge, Ooh. right? And I, and I put in a 4K laser projector and the sound is surround. It's on the ceilings and all that shit. I turn off the lights and I'm immersed. I'm literally watching movies. And when you have your Apple 4K uh, like hooked up to it, uh, and, and it's streaming and it's absolutely, it's like literally being in a movie theater. And so I, in the last six months, have been watching so many movies on a level that I have never had before because I'm actually, I have my own movie theater and it's insane. And so I'm rediscovering movies left and right. And it's inspiring just because I'm literally getting a cinematic experience anytime I want. Mm. It's kind of crazy. That's awesome. That's awesome. And it's funny you said that because even for myself during the, uh, uh, during this whole COVID stay home quarantine thing, I've caught up on a lot of film. I caught up on a lot of television and, um, that's what keeps my, you know, keeps me going, keeps me inspired and just keeps my mind open and just as a sponge, just absorbing this new shit that just, <laughs> I know what I'm telling you. I had that too. But when you have a movie theater, <laughs> it's a different. Imagine having an AMC theater in your house. That's what I have. It's crazy. So we need, we need, we need to get more commercials, man. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Um, and then, lastly, um, now. In terms of what's the last what's the last dope music video, short film, or commercial that you have seen that really made you be like, oh shit, that's that's just crazy, man. Like, wow, okay. I see what's up. This is something interesting. What's the last um, what's the, link, the last thing that's really got you got you excited? 
there's a lot of shit out there, and I'm always excited about it. But uh, but because X is here, uh, I, I'm going to take this moment to shout out to you. I'm saying shout out as the nerdiest Asian way of saying it. Okay. <laughs> 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 and this is going to sound super lame, and it's like the the wackest Asian person saying this. Uh, but Hotline Bling and Drake, even me saying those words is kind of whack, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I, I, there's an interesting thing that's happened in that video that I thought was very indicative of the culture at large. Okay, um, because like, I'm going to flip it up for a second. The movie Get Out, right? Yeah. Um, that was an interesting experiment because I saw the difference between white people and black people at that point as sort of like the the outside Asian referee, okay? <laughs> and what was interesting about Get Out is that it got a lot of critical acclaim. Everybody loved that particular movie. and uh, But it read two different ways. Black people saw it as a straight-up fucking horror movie, you know? it's mm. a, it, That was a scary fucking movie. White people coming after you. That is real shit, right? Mm. White people saw it as a comedy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, they, they didn't see it as a horror film. They saw it as like this sort of political statement and didn't take it at face value. Black people saw it as literally this is a face value thing of what happens to black people. And white people saw it as uh, like, you know, this is a comedy about like the, 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 the beautiful you know, academic whatever reasons they have of watching that stuff. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So there's two perspectives on that movie. And I think they're very real. Hotline Bling actually did the same thing, you know, mm. uh, for for black people, um, it, it is a really cool, like awesome thing of seeing like basically dad dancing. Right. Like it's like <laughs> like, like remember uh, from what I gather, Drake was originally considered a very soft rapper. Right. Mm. Like that was always his accusation. And then he, he hardened up and he became muscular and he became Drake. Right. And then all the women love him. And, and now it's like he's a hard guy. But then you brought him back there and suddenly this hard guy started uh, like dancing and it was like I think on on a black cultural level there's a face value version of it where it's just cool to see Drake dancing like that white people the reason why he's meme so much something else happened it was it was the it was on a weird level uh diffusing the anger of a black man <laughs> you know mm. like it, it was interesting for a lot of white because suddenly Drake became friendlier because he's having fun and black culture became more playful you know, and and so it's like by memeing him and showing his face and his little expressions and stuff like that, it was a way of making black people your friend, you know, even though necessarily that wasn't the codified thing that you were doing. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. It's like yeah. they could they they could take those images and make themselves feel like black people still like me. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm <laughs> yeah. gonna get in on the fun too. You know, so it's an interesting thing in terms of how culture works. And it was it was it it, it clearly is a defining uh, video of the moment and, and possibly of the decade. But I think it's because there's two different perspectives going into it that are clashing and that people haven't figured it out yet. But uh, I think I have. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll see if time makes it out. But, um, and I'd love to ask you a question actually about it. Um, what, was your, what was your intent on this thing? I mean, it was really, they, when they came to me, they came and said, look, we have... Um, Normally, they come up with their own ideas, but we want you to come up. You know, we love uh, Give Me the Light. And I just started thinking about the record and just that, just the music of it and just the, the what world could I begin to place him in and drawing out and sketching him ideas and giving him a place to live in because he knew he wanted to do that dancing. 
Right. But but when he was dancing, did you see comedy in it or did you take it at face value? I'm different. I just like I like to see, especially in our society, I'm always happy when men are dancing, good or bad. So mm-hmm. I don't look at a guy. If I see a guy dancing and really dancing, I don't care mm-hmm. if he's, you know, if I'm going to hire him to be the background dancer for Chris Brown or something like that. I just mm-hmm. like the fact that they're dancing. So I, I always encourage that. If, if the, one of my big frustrations is going out and seeing a bunch of girls with a bunch of guys and then the, the girls are dancing and the guys are just kind of standing around not knowing what to do. And I'm looking at them like, come on, y'all. Just give them a little dance, bro. Just give them a little, just give them something. So that was, that, that was my thought process on so, that. So you saw it as, uh, you took it at, 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 as uh, an actual positive face value. He's dancing good on him. Um, he's being himself in an individual in, yeah. in that particular moment. It, yeah. And, and it's funny, uh, and I think that uh, the shock to a lot of white people was that the dancing was so strange to them that it felt comedic, and right. and and some of the interpretations, especially when they started memeing it, you know, um, was the sort of uh, in a in a world of hostile black men, he was like a cuddly teddy bear or something, you know. It's like some yeah. weird read that's that's been coming across. That's my interpretation of what I, I see uh, pop culture doing with that and taking it uh, on other levels. And well, and you know what? Hmm. Sorry, go ahead. No, just you would never, you would, you're right. You would never seen that, right? Because yeah, the dancing is either from from a hip hop artist. It's not really dance. There's movement, it's rhythmic, and you know you, there's something to it. But they're not dancing. And then for the ones who dance, they dance. I mean, they, they, and they dance in such a way that you're like, oh, I could never do that. What he was doing was somewhere in between that, where it gets you to well, if he can dance and I can dance. If that's yeah. dancing, I'm going to go out and dance. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. I felt like he was he was opening the door for people to say, "All right, let me go out there. Let me go. Let me go have my fun." Which in uh, you know, I'm a I, I'm West Indian. Taj is West Indian. We come from a dancing culture. We come from a dancing people. We literally see, see, grind to say hello. Uh, I know, <laughs> and, and, and that's see, that's the problem. That's how cool black people are compared to everybody else. But but be clear, you know, you know, I think every culture. Every culture, every race has its cool factors, right? Yes. And I, but but going back to what you were saying, Joseph, what I loved about to 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 Drake's to to Drake's credit, he's always been that artist that he doesn't like, even though he's a rapper, even though he is a superstar, but he knows, you know what? Yeah, I don't take shit too seriously, right? He loved the memes. He was out there reposting them. He was out there. Like, he did a parody. Uh, commercial with Paul Hunter for his own shit like he he understands the importance of social media and what it means and how to play into that and I respect the fact that he's willing to put himself out there and take that type of exchange and and be vulnerable and not give a fuck you know um and 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 that again that also that's just a credit to his genius where he's like I don't give a fuck. I'm going to go up there and do my thing. And I don't give a fuck at what people think and whatever. And that's what made that shit cool. Like, I knew the shit was nuts when I saw Martin Short and Trump spoofing it on Saturday Night Live. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, and you know, like Bernie Sanders and everyone, like the shit been spoofed and gift and whatever. It was one of those moments where like people always said to us, like, was that intentional? Like, no, nah, that was just something like we just went on set. We just we just had fun and just didn't give a fuck. And then the world just embraced it that way. And that's that's the beauty of art, you know. It's interesting, not to uh, make the conversation a little longer, but um, 
it's an interesting thing because I think a lot of people in music videos know that it's going to get gift, you know? So like, for instance, when I was working with Taylor, I purposefully like, like made the videos gifable, you know, mm. knowing that particular moments were going to become gift. I mean, there's a reason why in Look What Made You Do, there's she's drinking tea and the snakes come out. That's going to be a gift moment. And it did turn into a gift moment. Um, Blank Space, we, we literally said was gift the video, you know? So um, it's an interesting thing. Uh, doesn't always work, but Hotline Bling definitely turned into like an actual GIF, you know, yeah. uh, and, and, and that that in today's world, especially in the NFT world, you should have turned that thing into an NFT and made yourself sixty nine million dollars. <laughs> Is this, is this the business mind talking to us right now? Is this the yeah, business yeah. mind? And actually, you know what? Kudos to you for what you did with uh, with Taylor with with Bad Blood. Like, like the fact that you had this big corporation, I believe at the time, American Express, you know, like pretty much cut the check. You'd be like, hey, here you go. Go make a music video. And you didn't have to do the typical like, wow, all of a sudden, credit card out of nowhere pulls up and she's swiping like... The fact it was just presented by, and they just kind of took a back seat and just let the art be the art, be the forefront, and be the hero of the of the piece. I am I'm really surprised because usually working with a corporation of that size and that magnitude, they want to make sure that their 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 brand integration is like front and center. Uh, I know we're going on, but like. Could again to you, kudos. I'm, I'm not sure what the inner workings were and what the behind well, the scenes were, but. I was really surprised the fact that I didn't see one credit card swipe. I talk about that a lot in, in these in these meetings. I bring up that I bring that up as an example quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's the funny thing about that one is um, uh, I really got turned on by the idea of the return of the white woman. You know. Like, <laughs> 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 Because remember, like the sort of skinny blonde chick wasn't around for a while, you know, yeah. like maybe not, not since Olivia Newton-John, even Madonna had muscles, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, just the idea of taking this archetype of a skinny, entitled white woman, that image, and, and then having American Express like like co-sign this thing, it just seemed <laughs> it just seemed like wow, like what a moment in time I can actually do something with this. And so I made blank space where it's literally about the most entitled white woman in the world, like like just going nuts on her wealthy boyfriends in a mansion. And it's like one scene after another of having her her fantasy uh, like get sort of like print picked, and then she turns into a complete nightmare. Um, it was like I made the original Karen the music video. You know? <laughs> Totally. <laughs> and again, that's the subversive thing about me, you know? Like, I'm going to make this thing, and I'm going to make something something that you normally hate. You hate that woman, but because she's doing it with such glee and she's playing that villain role, everybody walks away going, yeah, I like that, you know? Like, she's she gave me a good time, and she, I like this Karen, you know? So it's always kind of an intro social experiment in a lot of these well, things. I, I'll tell you this. I'm, I'm a... I'm a huge fan of Taylor Swift and I love the videos that you created for her. You created these these blockbuster cinematic moments for her. And you brought us back to the time that what we grew up on where films were, you know, music videos were like short films and it was an experience. And it was like this amazing, like, you know, like fantasy story that people could kind of just go along with. And um, you guys just made some really cool movie magic with the work that you guys did. And I loved, I loved all the jobs that you guys have done together. And again, uh, 
you know kudos to you man but um but yo joseph man again uh joseph this was incredible uh you are uh you're a legend and i uh so 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 uh so happy to speak with you hopefully one day we get to like actually do this in person go to la sit down order a bunch of food and just have a good time but man you fucking rock dude and 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 i'm so happy to actually just chat with you and uh you're you're the real deal man thank you so much for your time bro i i really enjoyed my time with you guys and i hope to see you guys soon yeah man good talking to you bro Wow, that was a very fun and animated conversation with veteran director Joseph Kahn. Thank you again, Joseph, for sharing your crazy stories. Hopefully, being married now, you could put away your horniness. (laughs) You crazy guy. But uh, thank you so much for sharing those gems. Now, as always, I like to recommend something great to check out. And this time, it's an animated series on Netflix, which is executive produced by another veteran director uh, by the name of David Fincher. Uh, It's this great series called Love, Death, and Robots Season 2. It's out now on Netflix. It's fucking awesome. I uh, I binge-watched it in one night, and I couldn't get enough. I love this series. If you haven't watched Season 1, watch it as well, too. But Season 2 is out now. It's awesome, 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 awesome. Okay? Make sure to follow the show on Instagram and TikTok at Architects Pod. Send us a message and let us know who you want to see and hear on the show. Architects is created by Fella and produced in partnership with Curious Cast. Our theme music and audio production are by Oso Audio. See you next time. Peace.